Good morning, Compass Church. How are you this morning? It's good to be with you here, praising the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Daryl, it's not just how you think about it in terms of how you pronounce Louisville, by the way. It is Louisville. There's no S in it. You don't say that. Now, there there are a couple ways you can do it. If you're you're just sort of a a non-native of Louisville, you can say the word as Louisville if you really want to. You can put three syllables in it. If you're a native of the country, though, you just say it in kind of one, two syllables sort of all stuck together. It's just Louisville. That's how you do it. It's just that the rest of the country can't understand you when you say that, and so you have to go with Louisville. It makes everybody feel better. Anyway, I, I, I want to say, too, uh, that I, I feel for you guys tonight after the, uh, the game last night. I'm very sorry. You need to know though that you're, you're staring here at a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan. So, so it hasn't been quite as long, but it's a long time. It's like most of my life since the Dallas Cowboys have won the Super Bowl. So, so I sort of know how you're feeling. So we're just going to sort of wallow in our grief tonight. The thing is, the difference actually though, between the World Series and the Super Bowl is that when you, when you lose one game of the Super Bowl, that's it, right? You guys still have a chance. So, so buck up. Stop feeling sorry for yourselves. Go Cubs. Fly the W. Maybe you get to clinch it at home now. We'll see. We'll see. I want to talk with you this morning, though, about something far more important than baseball, as hard as that might be to believe on a day like this. I want to talk with you about uh, sort of a W that is far more important than the, the W that the Cubs might put up, and that's the W that Jesus Christ put up when he rose from the dead. Um, I want to talk to you about that, though, in the context of one particular question, and that is, why do we as Christians trust the Bible? Is there anything about the Bible uh, that sets it apart as unique, as something special, as something that is to be believed and to rest your life on in a way that is not true of other books, of, of other things that people call scripture? What is it about the Bible that makes it trustworthy and that makes it reliable? And I want to try to make for you today a case for that. For those of you who are Christians, and I would imagine uh, in, a, in a crowd like this that that's, that's probably most of you. You would say you're professing Christians. You probably have come to the conclusion over the last few years that in the life of the United States of America, at least over the last decade or so, to be a Christian and to stand up and say, I am with Jesus, turns out to take a lot more courage than it did several years ago. Our culture has taken a turn and our culture has moved in such a way that to stand up and say, I'm with Jesus, I believe what the Bible says, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, just takes a tremendous amount of courage because to say those things cuts so violently against what our world actually believes in the direction that our culture is moving in. So for us to say, I'm a Christian, requires courage, but it also requires what Peter talks about when he says, you should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. To give a defense for the faith that you have. Now I think some people when they read that verse hear Peter saying you need to be able to give a defense for the faith that is in you. And they think, think, okay, well that just means that I I need to defend my faith. I need to play defense, right? I need to convince the world that being a Christian is not as bad as they think it is. I need to convince the world that it's actually just sort of okay for me to be a Christian. But what I want to try to convince you of this morning and give you some tools to to work with is that when Peter says you need to be ready to make a defense of your faith, he doesn't mean play defense. That word defense actually means simply make a case for the hope that is in you. 
And he's not just talking about answering objections and making it okay to be a Christian. When he says make a case for your faith, he's talking about also going on offense. In other words, squaring up to the world and staring it in the eye and saying, look, it's not just that it's okay for me to be a Christian and that's not as bad as you think it is. It's actually that it's not okay for you not to be a Christian. We have reasons for what we believe. They make sense. And when you think about it, the reality is that you need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, the world, need to believe this Bible in the same way that I do. That's the kind of defense or case that Peter wants you to make. Now, there are lots of questions that go along with that, right? I mean, there's, there's who is Jesus and is Jesus who he, said he, who, who he said he actually is. There's the question of is there a God. There are all kinds of questions that surround that. And you've been studying those for the last couple of weeks. But one of the very first questions that you have to ask, because so much comes out of it, is, okay, why do you Christians believe the Bible? Why do you believe that this particular book is is real and not just a bunch of stories or legends that have been put together by people who were unusually superstitious? Why do you believe the Bible? I have a six-year-old daughter uh, named Juliet, and uh, uh, Juliet and I have at times in her life played this game where I am trying to convince her uh, uh, of the difference between stories and things that are real. And so I'll throw little tests at her to, to help her understand that, right? And I'll have her, I'll say something to her and then have her respond to me, either daddy, that's real or dad, that's a story. And so I'll say something like, Juliet, you're going to tell me whether this is a real thing or a story. And I'll say, George Washington was the first president of the United States. And she'll say, daddy, that's real. And then I'll say, okay, Juliet, uh, Batman chased down the Joker in the Batmobile and threw him in jail. And she'll sort of chuckle and laugh, you know, like six-year-old girls do. And she'll say, Daddy, that's just a story. And I say, yep, yep, you're right about that. And I say, okay, uh, Uncle Matt moved from Waco to Dallas, got a new job and bought a new house. And she'll say, that's, that's real, Dad. And I'll say, okay, Elsa, the princess, used her special ice powers to build an ice castle in, in, in the mountains. And she'll think about it for a second because she loves that movie and she wishes it were real. But then she'll say, no, daddy, that's, that's just a story. And I'll say, yep, that's right. That is, that is just a story. And I'll say, okay, uh, Elmo found a goldfish and read it a, 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 a story before it went to bed. And she'll say, dad, that's just a story too. And then I throw her a curveball. I say, Juliet, there was a fellow named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and he walked on top of water. And then he died, but then he rose again from the dead. Like not just pretend, but real. He got up out of the grave. And now this man who walked on the water and got up from the dead lives in heaven right now. And he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords over the entire universe. Now, how is she supposed to answer that? Well, she's a, she's a good little girl who's grown up in a pastor's family, right? And so she gets it right every time. Dad, that's real, right? But what if you were to play the same game with the world around you? What if you played the same game with your coworkers or with your neighbors or with your, your family, with your friends? How are they supposed to answer that question? How do they expect you to answer that question? Because if somebody were asking you those questions, you'd get every single one of them right in the eyes of the world, and the world would agree with you. And then you'd come to that very last one about Jesus, and you would try to stand there with your feet squared up to the world, and you'd try to say, yes, that's real. And the world would look at you and say, you're a nut. You're, you're, you're crazy. 
You're crazy to believe that this guy walked on the water and raised people from the dead and got up himself from the dead. And now he lives in heaven somewhere with a crown on his head. And he says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he he threw the stars into space at the beginning of the whole thing. What are you talking about? You're crazy. What's your answer to that? Well, your answer is probably something like, well, well, I I do believe it because, because the Bible says so. The Bible says so, and, and I believe that those things are true because I, I believe the Bible. And the very next question from the world is going to be, okay, but why do you believe the Bible? I mean, why would you take this book and, and privilege it more than you privilege some other book like the, the Lord of the Rings? You know, why don't you believe that there's actually a place called Mordor and this king called Aragorn, if, you, if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings? Why don't you believe that as much as you believe this story about the, the Bible? Why, why? Why do you privilege it? How do you answer that? Well, people have all kinds of reasons for for believing the Bible, you know, you, you, you might have expected maybe that what I was going to do this morning is, is bring up and maybe put some pictures on the screens about archaeological evidence that proves that the Amorites and the Hittites and the, you know, the Jebusites, that they all existed 3,500 years ago or whatever, and we've proven that through archaeology. You know, maybe you expected me to bring, bring some artifacts that would show that, you know, the temple in Jerusalem really existed and we have this evidence for Jesus and that evidence for Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, we can believe from the archaeological and historical record that the Bible actually is true. And I could have done that because it's all, that's all the case, right? The archaeological evidence is all there. But the problem is that there's archaeological evidence for a lot of books, you know, there are a lot of books that, that say a lot of th- true things about archaeology and history, and yet we as Christians don't stake our lives on those books. So why do those kinds of things privilege the Bible over any other book that happens to be archaeologically accurate? Why? I mean, some people will give, the other, give another reason, and they'll say, well, look, the reason that I believe the Bible is because I've seen the Holy Spirit use the Bible in my life in these certain ways, and it has all these good fruits in my life. In my life, it can, can be a fine reason to, to sort of help nail your faith in the Bible down. But, you know, there are lots of books that do lots of things in lots of people's lives, right? There are people who say that their lives have been changed by reading this philosophy book or that philosophy book. Why does the fact that the Bible has good effects in your life cause it to be privileged over any other book that might have good effects in your life? What is it about the Bible that makes it special? Some other people might give the answer, well, you know, you just read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and it just has this sort of amazing ring of truth to it. Well, okay, I think that's true, actually. I think the Bible has a a beautiful ring of truth to it, but, but there are a lot of books that say true things, right? I mean, you could even come up with, probably be a short book, but you could probably come up with some book that actually doesn't get anything factually wrong, right? What would privilege the Bible over a book like that? Why do you believe the Bible? Well, I want to try to make a case for you today for why I believe the Bible, why I believe that the Bible is true, why I believe the Bible is in fact the word of God from the very first word in Genesis to the very last word in Revelation. It's not based on any of those kinds of things, but that is based squarely and firmly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me just cut to the chase and tell you why I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that the Bible is true in every word that it says. In fact, I believe the Bible is the word of God in every single word that it says because Jesus believed it to be so and Jesus got up from the dead. So we better listen to him. That's the reason. That's it. It's really as simple as that when you get right down to it. Now I want to spend the next few minutes this morning just kind of unpacking that little logical progression for you. 
What I want to do is talk to you about it in, in kind of three reasons. Three reasons or, or three steps in the logic. First of all, we just need to understand that the resurrection was not just an exclamation point on the story of Christianity. It has a meaning. And one of the things that it means, one of the things that it, that it accomplishes in the Christian life, in Christian theology, in the Christian faith, is that it confirms Jesus' identity. It tells us that what he claimed about himself actually is the case. He is who he said he was. That's one of the things that the resurrection does. That's the first step that I want to take with you. The second step is to say, okay, once we've sort of established that, once we understand who Jesus is, and that's confirmed by the fact that he got up from the dead, well, then our confidence in the Bible begins to settle in because what we realize is that this Jesus who is the resurrected one, endorsed the entire Old Testament from start to finish. From Genesis to Malachi, he endorsed every single one of it, every single word of it as the word of God. So that's the second step. First, we're going to confirm Jesus' identity. Second, we're going to realize that this man, Jesus, who rose from the dead, endorsed the whole Old Testament. And then the last step is just simply to understand that he authorized every single word of the New Testament. Once you've got those things, you see the whole truth of the Bible, our whole confidence that the Bible actually is the word of God rests squarely on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, one thing I want you to understand right from the beginning is that there's nothing unique about that. I mean, the fact is the whole superstructure of the Christian faith rests on the question, did Jesus get up from the dead or not? The whole thing rests on that question. If you want to know kind of what the linchpin of Christianity is, it's that question. Did Jesus get up from the dead or not? If it somehow is proven that Jesus did not get up from the dead, then we might as well pack up this whole thing and go home. Because there's no point in it. It's what, it's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says that if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then we Christians of all people on the face of the planet are most to be pitied because we're wasting our time. I mean, you realize what he's saying there, right? If, if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then we are the most, according to Paul, pitiful people on the face of the planet. We are the most pathetic people on the face of the planet if Jesus didn't get up from the dead. But if Jesus did get up from the dead, if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, then the whole superstructure of Christianity falls into place. That's a helpful thing to realize, just by the way, when you're, when you're doing evangelism, when you're talking to friends and neighbors about the truth of Christianity. So many times, your friends and neighbors and coworkers, when you open up a conversation with them about Christianity, are going to go to fringe issues on the edge of Christianity, and that's what they're going to want to talk about. They're going to want to talk about what Christianity says about sexual ethics. And then they're going to want to talk about what Christianity says about morality. And then they're going to throw up the smoke screen. And, and they're going to want to talk about how God really could have sent this flood on the earth. Or how there could be a fish big enough to swallow Jonah. And how he could live in the belly of that whale if it was a whale for so long. They're going to want to talk about all these things on the edge of Christianity. My church is like half a block from the University of Louisville. So we have a lot of students that come through. And we have a lot of like freshman philosophy majors who will come through my church. And oh my goodness, do they want to talk about fringe things on Christianity. And I've just learned through the years that the way you handle a freshman philosophy major who has questions about Christianity is that I'll talk to them for maybe two or three minutes about the flood and the whale. I'll talk to them for maybe four or five minutes about Christian sexual ethics. But after about 10 minutes, I'm sort of done with it. And I'll say, look, 
Look, look, look. I know you've got objections to Christianity all around the edges of this thing. But you need to know that none of those things is at the heart of Christianity. And in fact, I can tell from just the way you're talking to me that you actually somehow think that your 10-minute conversation with this Christian pastor is going to cause me to start doubting my faith. Let me tell that ain't going to happen. <laughs> Let me tell you how you can da- make me doubt my faith. Let me, I'll just, I'll just give, this is like Samson telling Delilah, this is how he cut his hair, right? I'm going to tell you how to do this. You need to show me that Jesus Christ did not get up from the dead. If you can make me doubt that, then you're, you're pulling at the very center of the, of the web of Christianity. And if you can break that out of there, my whole faith is going to fall and you'll really enjoy that. But you see, what, what I'm doing there is actually trying to get that philosophy major fired up to take my faith down. But I know that if he actually starts to look into the question, did Jesus rise from the dead historically? If he starts to really consider that, eventually he's going to come to a point either where he has to be intellectually dishonest and say, nope, I don't think he did. I reject that. Or he's going to have to scratch his head and say, yeah, every bit of historical evidence that can ever be assembled about this question points to the fact that Jesus actually did get up from the dead. And what do I do from there? So I'm happy to have that conversation with him. Happy to have it. Because the whole superstructure of Christianity rests on that question. So look, when you're talking to your friends, neighbors, coworkers, and they go for the fringes, talk to them, you know, prove to them for a few minutes that, that Christians really have thought about these things for, for a long time and that there's no question that they're going to ask in the 10 minutes they're talking to you that's going to take down Christianity. Prove to them that you've thought about it a little bit, but go to the resurrection. Challenge them. Just say, look, 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 look. This is not a question you can ignore because the whole thing rests on this. Did he get up from the dead or not? Press them on that. You'll find lots of fruit from it. Because he did, he did, and every bit of evidence points to it. I'm not gonna try to make a case for you this morning that Jesus got up from the dead. Other people have done that, and that's not the question that we're, that we're considering this morning. But, but I can tell you, there is a watertight case for the fact, historically, not just religiously or metaphorically, that Jesus got up from the dead. If you wanna look into that more, uh, there are a few books that you could read that would give you a sort of introduction to that case. There's, uh, there's Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, a really good sort of reporter's look uh, at the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Uh, there's another book by a fellow named Greg Gilbert, I think, called Why Trust the Bible? And one of the chapters in that little book, that book's only about 140 pages long, really short. And there's a case in it for the resurrection of Jesus that's maybe 20 pages long, so you could probably read it over a lunch break. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's a pretty good case for why... Uh, uh, why we think Jesus actually historically rose from the dead. So you can get those and you can look at them. But, but the bottom line is, is, look, when you get right down to it, when you get right down to it, something happened on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago that had massive effects in a lot of people's lives. It changed the course of history. Whatever happened on that Sunday morning changed the course of history and you can't deny that. Right? You can't say nothing happened. Something happened. And people have given all kinds of answers for what happened on that Sunday morning. Right? I mean, some people will say, well, they just, uh, they, they were pulling off a hoax on the world, or the Romans stole the body, or they had a mass delusion, or there was this mass hallucination, or, you know, there was just a matter of wishful thinking. But you look at it historically, you look at it as historians do, and what you find out pretty quickly is that none of those explanations hold any water. None of those explanations can actually explain what happened on that Sunday morning to change the course of history. The only thing that has the explanatory power 
to make sense of what happened after that Sunday morning is that Jesus actually did bodily, historically, really non-metaphorically get up from the dead. So that, there, there's like a 30-second case, but you can delve into that a lot more. The, the question I want to I ask, though, today is, okay, well, what does that have to do, though, with our trust for the Bible? What is the fact that Jesus got up from the dead have to do with our trust for the Bible. And I want to take you through that in three steps very quickly over the next few minutes. The first thing is that the resurrection proves Jesus's identity. It proves Jesus's identity. And I want to take you to a couple of places in the Bible where we can see that really clearly, that the resurrection did that. Yeah, the resurrection does a lot of things in the Christian life. The resurrection does a lot of things in, in Christian theology. I mean, it's the, it's the basis of our, our understanding that, that even though death is a, a reality for us, even though we deserve to die, if we're united to Christ through faith, if we believe in him and trust him to save us, we actually are going to rise right along with him as we're united to him. The resurrection does that. The resurrection proves to us that, the, that, that, that Jesus really was who he says he is. In fact, that's the most important thing. It proves his identity. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, if you have a Bible. And I want to show you one place where, where this becomes really clear. That one of the main functions of the resurrection, even in Jesus' mind, was to show that he really is who he said he was. Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 21. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, a couple of things I want you to see about this verse. What's going on in chapter 16 is that Jesus is pressing his disciples about his identity, about who he is. And so he asks them straight up, who do you, who do you guys say that I am? And lots of answers come. And some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're, you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Some people say that you're, you're this or you're that or you're the prophet. You're Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You're, you're somebody like that. Well, Peter eventually realizes that none of those answers are adequate. And so, you know, he sort of leans forward over the campfire or wherever they were. And he says, he says hey, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. That's, that's what he says. And Jesus says, yep, you're right. You're right, and it's, and it's not just your own reasoning and your own logic that's brought you to that conclusion. The Father himself in heaven has given you that, that knowledge and made you aware of that. And then you have this verse 21. You know, this is verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that all these things must happen, right? Now, now notice a couple of things about this. First of all, we're not talking about a five-minute conversation here. Verse 21 says that from that time on, Jesus began to explain. That means this was ongoing explanation from Jesus. It was ongoing teaching that, that happened when Peter understood that he was the Christ. When he said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the King, you are these things. That's when Jesus began over the next few days and weeks, maybe even months, to teach his disciples who he, who he was. Notice also the word must in there. From that time on, he began to explain to his disciples that he, he must go to Jerusalem. And he, he must be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must suffer and he must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised to life. You see the word must? Why is it must? Why is it must? I mean, why isn't it just will? 
Why isn't it just that Jesus is looking down through time and he can see the future, right? Like a fortune teller. And he just says, this is what's going to happen. But it's not just, this is what's going to happen. It's, this is what must happen. It was planned in advance. It's got to happen like this. Why? Well, the answer is in the word there, explain. From that time on, Jesus began to explain. The word explained there, underneath it in the original language, actually means something more like he began to show them. He began to show them. Now, why, why show? What, from what? I mean, show them what? What is he showing them? Is he just showing them reasoning? Is he just showing them logic? I mean, what is he explaining? What is he, what is he showing? Well, the answer is that he's showing them from the Old Testament that these things must happen to the man who turns out to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was all laid out in the Old Testament. If somebody shows up, And claims to be the Christ. What is going to happen to them according to the Old Testament. Is that they are going to be handed over. And they are going to suffer. And they are going to die. And then they are going to rise again. And if you see somebody to whom those things happen. If somebody ever gets up from the dead. You can know that they are the Christ. The son of the living God. You see that? It was all laid out in the Old Testament. Jesus does this over and over again. You see the logic though? Do you see what he's saying? When I get up from the dead. That's going to show you that I really am what Peter just confessed me to be. Because the Old Testament laid it out. And the disciples had a hard time with this. And actually, they, they didn't actually get it completely until the day that he actually did rise from the dead. Remember? I mean, they, they, they start to understand. When he rises from the dead, they think, oh my goodness, look at that. He got up from the dead. Therefore, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's when it all clicks for him. He's proving his identity through his resurrection. There are other places in the Bible where this happens. If you just, Jesus does this again in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 17. So just turn over there with me. One page, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. It says, when they came together, the, the they there's the disciples again. When they came together in Galilee, he, that's Jesus, said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And so the disciples were filled with, with grief. Now, a couple of things to notice about this first. First of all, the, the words son of man there are not just saying a person who is a son of a man. That's not what that's saying, right? I mean, that's, there's nothing extraordinary about being a son of a man. My 13-year-old son, Justin, is over there backstage waiting on me for a few minutes. He is, in fact, the son of a man. He is the son of quite a man, let's be honest. <laughs> I'm kidding. About half of you sitting in this room right now are... Sons of a man, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. The other half of you are daughters of a man, right? It's just nothing extraordinary to be the son of a man. And so that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing there is grabbing a term from the Old Testament that became a kind of throne name for the Messiah, for the Christ. It's just another another title for Christ. So the son of man, the the Christ, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. You can read that later where Daniel has this vision and he says... I saw heaven opened up in the night. I saw visions and I saw one who looked like a son of man. Now he's just talking about a human there. He's blown away by it because he's looking into heaven and he sees somebody go to the throne of God and be given this dominion and authority and power. And he's blown away by the fact that that guy looks like a human. The the one who's being given dominion over the universe looks like a person. 
It's not an angel. It's not a cherub. It's not, it's not some massive looking thing. It's a person. And he's blown away by that. And so he says, it looks like a son of man. Well, just over time, people realized that that was the, the Christ. That's the Messiah. And so they take that phrase, son of man, and they make it a throne name for, for the Messiah himself. That's what's going on. But, but look what he says. This person who is the son of man, and that's me, he says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Again, he's not just looking down through history. He's saying, that's the role of the person who is the Son of Man. And when you see that happening to someone, that's what's going to confirm to you that he is, in fact, the Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when you see me get up from the dead, you're going to know I'm the Christ. That's the first thing, okay? That's point number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is. Here's the second thing. Jesus got up from the dead, and therefore he is the Christ, and so we ought to listen to him. And one of the things that this Jesus said is that he endorsed the entire Old Testament. From start to finish, from Genesis to Malachi, he endorsed every single word of it and said, it's all the word of God. It's just every every single bit of it is the word of God. Let me show you a place where this happens in the Bible, in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Luke chapter 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection. In verse 44 there, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now the key to understanding what Jesus is doing there is that that phrase at the end, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the key to it. You and I, when we take the 66 books of the the, uh, Bible and stick them together, what do we call that book? We, we, We call it the Bible, right? That's just the kind of name that we've given to the book. Well, when the when the Jews took the 39 books of their Old Testament and stuck them together into one book, you know what they called it? You know the name that they sort of gave it in the same way that we gave our book the name the Bible? They called it the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's what they called it. So, so when Jesus says this, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, he's saying everything's got to be fulfilled that's written about me that, that, that's written in the Old Testament. That's what he means. He's, he's endorsing the whole thing from, from start to finish that every single word of it is true and every single word of it must be fulfilled. But it's not just that it's true. There's actually another level to it. Now, I wanna, I, you don't have to turn here, but I want to I tell you about another time when Jesus does this. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says something about the Old Testament that is far more than just that it's true in every word. He actually makes the case that every single word of it is the word of God himself. So in Matthew 19, he's in this argument with, uh, with the, uh, the Pharisees and they get, they're getting into it about marriage and about divorce and all of these different things. And I'm not gonna go through that entire argument with you. But I wanna read one sentence to you from Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus makes this case. He answers the Pharisees at one point. Look, 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 look. Have you not read, listen carefully, have you not read that he who created Adam and Eve from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. There are two things there, right? There is he who created them. Now, who is that? Who is he who created them? 
God. That's God, clearly, right? The one who created Adam and Eve was God. He who created them, God, said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, right? Okay, all right. Now that's not surprising to us, but if you go back to Genesis and look at that statement, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, da 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 that's not a quote from God. That's just commentary that Moses wrote down as he was writing the story. That's a word of Moses. That's not a word of God. And yet Jesus attributes that statement written by Moses to God. You see what he's doing there? He does it several other times in the scriptures too. He takes things that are not direct quotes of God and says, because they are in these books, they're the word of God. From Genesis to Malachi, it's all the word of God. He understands that every single bit of it is true. Every single bit of it. Adam and Eve, Elijah and Elisha. The flood of Noah, the, the walls of Jericho falling down, Sodom and Gomorrah, the queen of Sheba, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman being healed in the, in the river, the whale that swallowed Jonah. At various points in the Gospels, Jesus establishes the truth of all those things. From start to finish, he endorses the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? This is the third point. He endorses the Old Testament from start to finish. What about the New Testament? I mean, obviously there's a problem there because Jesus can't just endorse the New Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet before he ascended into heaven. So we don't say that Jesus endorsed the New Testament, but what we do say is that he authorized it. Now, what do we mean by that? He authorized it. In his office as king, in his office as Lord of Lords, he authorizes the the New Testament. Therefore, it carries his authority. What do we mean by that? Well, when the early church was trying to figure out when it was trying to, to pull together, right, and look at all of these, these books and figure out, you know, which ones of these have the authority of God? Which of these are the word of God? One of the most important criteria that they used in order to establish that was that these books had to have been written by someone who was either an eyewitness to Jesus, right, an apostle, or somebody who was just really close to an apostle and could hear from the apostle and then write down what the apostle said, right? There's some books like that. But one of the most important criterion was what they called apostolicity. It had to be done by an apostle or close acquaintance of an apostle. Now, why? Well, for one thing, it was just that the best records of somebody's life are going to come from those who were eyewitnesses to that person's life, right? And the apostles were those people. They're the ones who, who walked around Galilee and Jerusalem and Capernaum with him for three years. And so they knew him best. They had seen all the stories. And so their eyewitness accounts were far more useful to anybody than somebody who lived 50 years after Jesus and never actually met him. Right? So that's one reason that they did it. But that wasn't the only reason. That's not the only reason that they took the books written by apostles and, and said, these are the ones we want. The other and more important reason was because they knew that Jesus as king had specifically authorized those apostles to speak and write in his name. He had commissioned, authorized those guys in particular to speak in his name. Let me read you a passage from John where this becomes clear. Jesus says to his apostles, he's he's about to go to Jerusalem and he's about to be killed and resurrected and then ascend into heaven. He says to them, listen, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he's going to take what's mine and, and he, the Holy Spirit, is going to declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine and therefore I said that he is going to take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see what he's doing there? 
He's saying, I've got a lot of things to say to you, but, but I'm not going to have time to say it all. So the Holy Spirit is going to come and take the things that I want to say to you, and he is going to say them to you, and you're going to write them down and say it to all the rest of my followers. That's what he's going to say. He specifically authorizes them to write. And so that's why we as Christians, as Christians have for the last 2,000 years, look at the books of the New Testament, and we say, yeah, these are, these are the authoritative writings about Jesus, not just because these guys who wrote them were eyewitnesses to them, but because they were specifically authorized by Jesus to write them. And it's fun to look through the New Testament and see that that's how they understood each other. Right? I mean, Peter at one point in one of his letters looks at the writings of Paul and he, he kind, of, kind of funnily says, you know, some of these things of Paul are really hard to understand, right? But then he turns around and he says, but, but people twist Paul's writings in the same way they do the other scriptures. He understands the writings of Paul to be scripture. We believe that the Bible is the word of God because this man, Jesus of Nazareth, actually of Bethlehem, endorsed the entire Old Testament and authorized the entire New Testament. And we ought to listen to that man because he is the only one in the history of the world to be resurrected from the dead. Friends, your faith is not just a leap of faith that doesn't have any reason. It is solid. It is grounded. It is real. And so you should have confidence when you go out into the world, not just to play defense, but to say, listen, the gospel is true. And I know it's true because Jesus got up from the dead and you need to believe it too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has not left us in the dark. You've not left us without any reason for our faith. But Father, you have... You have given us good grounding for what we believe about Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'd give us a confidence in our faith. We pray that as we go into a world that that is dark and unbelieving, that you would help us not just to play defense, but to be confident, to speak about the truth of the gospel with great confidence and with great solidity. Lord, we pray for this church that you would help them to do that. And we pray that Jesus might be glorified because of it. We pray it in his name and always to his honor and glory. Amen.